nine o'clock. Hi, welcome to In the Trenches with Andrew Taylor, where we talk about millennials and this crazy world they're adulting into. In this episode, I interview Will White. He is the author of Stories from the Field, A History of Wilderness Therapy. I have been wanting to interview Will since I started this podcast because he has had a huge influence on me, which I talk about in the beginning of the interview. Dr. White received his Master of Social Work degree from the University of Denver and his doctorate degree in leadership from Franklin Pierce University. He's been licensed as a clinical social worker and alcohol and drug abuse counselor for over 25 years. He is nationally recognized expert in the field of adventure wilderness therapy. His his doctoral dissertation, which traced the evolution of wilderness therapy through critical leaders and incidents, has been cited as the most comprehensive scholarly work on the history of the field to date. Uh, he served as a board member on the National Association of Therapeutic Schools and Programs, NATSAP, and served as a chairman of the Therapeutic Adventure Professionals Group of the Association of Experiential Education. He is certified in EMDR and mindfulness. He also spent a year in Asia studying Buddhism, which we touch on a little bit in the interview, and I will definitely be having him on again to talk about that. He, go, he goes through the entire history of, of wilderness therapy, and then we talk a lot about where it is today and where we see it going. Enjoy the interview. I sure did. Hi, this is Andrew Taylor. I've got Will White here uh, for an interview. Really excited to have Will here. When I, Will, can you hear us? I can hear you. Looking forward to uh, the interview. Great, great. Um, when I started Pure Life as a program, I read your entire book. Will authored Stories from the Field, A History of Wilderness Therapy, and it was, it was one of the books that helped me most guide me in, in starting a, a wilderness adventure therapy program in a foreign country. And whenever I hire new leadership or, or bring people on that are going to have a key role in the, in the program, I actually give them your book, Will. And when we do staff trainings, I talk about what I learned from your book and, and where we've come from as a field where we're headed, and, and I actually frame it to our, to our staff, is we, we, we have a sacred obligation to other programs, to the, to the history of the, in, the industry, and, we'll, and to uphold a high standard of quality so that we can keep doing what we do. So it's a real honor to have you here. I don't, I don't think you know the impact you've had on me, but I, I, I just wanted you to know that as we jump into our conversation. Oh, thank you. That's that's very kind of you, and I appreciate you sharing the book. And I'm not the only author in the book because the second half of the book is narratives from different founders of currently operating wilderness therapy programs in the country, throughout the country, in different parts of the world, actually. There's some in Canada. Um, and it's great to be on your show. 
I just used the word industry to describe what we do. And I, I sat in your workshop last week and you were you were very adamant this is an a field, not an industry. And and so I'm trying to change my language, but why don't we start what tell me your feelings behind that. I loved the metaphor that you used. Yeah, well, I really feel this is a field of work. Um, actually, originally, the Outdoor Behavioral Council, the Outdoor Behavioral Healthcare Council was Outdoor Behavioral Healthcare Industry Council, and we intentionally took the word out, industry. I use the word, the stories from the field, a history of wilderness therapy, um, in the title intentionally because it is a field and it's a field that's that's been growing since the 1860s in one definition and now another could say it's been going on for millennia hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years um, I see this as a field where we grow and we change and we adjust very much like um, any field. They don't call it the industry of social work. They call it the field of social work. Uh, psychology, I've never, uh, well, I'm sure there is the term, the industry of psychology, um, but it's typically the field of psychology, and we are in the subfield of that um, called wilderness therapy. And that's why I don't like the, the, the industry is a more recent term. Um, and that's been, I think, driven by more uh, a, a corporate feel and, and people really viewing. And if you look at the field of wilderness therapy in, in the book, a lot of it was certainly for the majority of its history was not about um, making profits. It was really about helping people in uh, using the outdoors in adventure. Um, industry is, is actually a relatively new field. And I say this, um, the book is actually a cumulation of, war, of a midlife crisis, Andrew, if I was really gonna <laughs> be honest with you. And so I was 47 and um, we had two children, my wife and I had two children. I had started a wilderness therapy program about 18, 19 years earlier. Um, things were doing pretty well in my life, but I didn't feel um, completely satisfied. And I didn't want to uh, leave my family and have an affair. And I didn't want to buy a new car, which a lot of men do and women do um, in the midlife crisis uh, in that term. So I decided to get my doctorate degree. Well, in writing the book, what I did was the framework was what, when did, when did someone formally use the outdoors or wilderness to create change for young people? And I use the term formally, uh, one, because you could go back to indigenous times in the rites of passage that indigenous people did uh, for young people when they went out and survived on their own for a while and then came back. Or you could go back to um, biblical stories where Jesus went out into the desert uh, 
And you could say that is the earliest of wilderness therapy. But, you know, I, my wife was like, you really need to get this thing done. You can't keep, so you have to have a boundary. And so I had a boundary of like, when did it start in the United States? I had to start somewhere. I had to put boundaries. And so the boundary was, okay, when was it first formally used? Not informally, but formally used. And so I traced it back really um, to summer camps in the United States when uh, the gunnery school uh, first used it and then the first independent summer school, summer camp, which was called uh, Camp Chikorwa in New Hampshire. And then I traced, and that was all through a literature review. And then I traced that history through literature review, not word of mouth or, oh, somebody told me this, and traced the history from the 1860s to uh, about the eight, uh, 1980s and 90s. Not, it didn't get up to 2000 in the dissertation. Then the second half was filling the gaps of primitive skills wilderness therapy programs, narratives from key people. And those three key people were Larry Wells, who had founded Wilderness Quest, Larry Olson, who, who started BYU 480 and subsequently helped start uh, SUS and of the uh, SUS of Idaho, and then Anasazi and Ezekiel Sanchez, who also worked at BYU 480 and um, then went on to found Anasazi. So, so I did long inter interviews with those three individuals, and that's the second half of my dissertation. So one half was chronicles, literature review. The second half is their stories of find, finding those pro, uh, like the early years in the field, basically in in the West. And, and that's is that kind of where you draw the line of what we know, you and I, as wilderness therapy? Is that kind of where you draw the line? of where it formally begins in the field that we're practicing? No, uh, no, it really begins at Outward Bound, really. Or you can, I mean, I don't want to even draw a line because I think that's dangerous. I think you get, you, get, you can see the influences. Uh, therapeutic summer camps in the 1920s and 30s with therapists, a licensed clinical social worker and psychologists, I mean, they were all over New England and North Carolina in that period of time. Even before that, um, Manhattan State Hospital in 19, I think it was 12, when there was an influence, uh, influenza outbreak, um, they, had, uh, they put everybody on the grounds and put them in tents instead of being in the buildings. And they were doing therapy outdoors and they were seeing remarkable gains. Um, and, and then you see Outward Bound, where, or you can go to um, Loft Miller's pro program, uh, the Dallas Salesmanship Club camps, where they would take kids out on expedition. But they didn't, they kind of said, no, we don't want these licensed clinicians. Um, Outward Bound was doing it in the 60s and 70s. Um, and the Primitive Skills School which you see in the Utah, Utah, Idaho, that really came out of BYU, uh, Brigham Young University. Um, but 
the Wilderness Treatment Center, um, and, um, the, that program was founded, that was very much influenced by Paul Petzl and Noel. So there's not, you, you can't silo it. There's, you know, there are lots of different seeds, like the garden, you know, lots of different seeds. They were growing different variations, but it's all the, you know, it's, just, it's all broccoli, if you will, or, or paths up a mountain. It's all the same idea, but different ways of doing it. I like that metaphor. What is, in your opinion, <clears throat> um, for, for anybody who hasn't heard of wilderness therapy, how would you give it just a real brief definition for anybody who might be listening and saying, you know, this is very new to me? Wilderness therapy, the best way is the intentional use of the outdoors to create change for the individuals involved, facilitated by a licensed mental health professional. Um, that's the current view. You know, the definition has changed before in the 70s, a lot of the, like in eight, early 80s, licensed mental health professionals was not, actually they were looked frowned upon. So it was much more of um, just going out and having experiences to create change well, for people who are suffering. Our industry is, is our field. <laughs> is, yeah. Is, uh, yeah. Our field is strong. It's growing, but it's still relatively very small. You know, we're... You and I sit on the Outdoor Behavioral Health Care Council board, which I just joined. Honored to be a part of it. And you've been a part of this for how many years now? Well, the, the council originally was founded, geez, was the exact year, um, was 1996. Summit opened in 96. I believe we joined in 98. We were one of the, um, we weren't the there was a five group of five that started it but i believe we were like sixth or seventh to join that's when i joined and and so so i've been involved with with it with the field formal in that aspect but i was doing wilderness therapy working in the outdoors long before that why do you think it's taking it's slow to grow. Why do you think it's still as small as it is? Because you and I are on the front lines of this. We're seeing the immense impact it has. We know the positive benefit. And yet it feels like on some level, we're still struggling to prove, hey, everybody, this is really working. Why do you think that's, hap that's taking so much time? Well, you live in, I live in a very rural area. I live, I mean, I am looking out at White Mountain National Forest in the mountains in front of me. I've been in this area for 30 years. Nowadays on weekends, the parking lots at trailheads are quite full. But I can't say that um, 10 years ago, it was that crowded. 
and 20 years, it's a lot, it was a lot less. So I think people are more interested in the outdoors as we become more mechanized society and spend more time in our cars and looking at screens. So I think there's greater interest and people see the rehabilitative, rehabilitative experiences of being outdoors. There's research that just shows having windows, being able to look out helps us be healthier. The field of wilderness therapy is all, it, it, it has always been on the outskirts of traditional fields. It was really first influenced by educators, uh, summer camps in the 1880s, uh, one of the first people who ever founded a summer camp was lambasted by educators saying, how can you do that to kids? How can you put them out in tents for the summer? That's abusive summer camp. This is talking about, so traditional educators at that period of time in the 1880s said that is a horrific thing that you're doing. Now summer camp, everybody nowadays generally feels summer camp's a great thing. So it took a long time, but for the first 50 years of summer camps, a lot of people didn't want their kids going to it because they thought it was too tough for them um, or wasn't comfortable enough. Well, I think the, the field of wilderness therapy, I think there it's, it's had some rough periods of time where people weren't some, uh, outliers in that group of people who had more abusive practices um, that they certainly impacted many in the field and, and many's experiences about it. So it hasn't been as widely adopted and as quickly adopted. But most people that you talk to, if you say, what do you think is better for you sitting inside for five hours or going for a hike for five hours? Um, most will say going for a hike or being outdoors or surfing or doing something. I think it's just something we have to continue to educate people about. When you were writing your book, I, I'm glad you brought up the, the darker part of the history of wilderness therapy. You know, there, there were some programs that were more punitive in nature that took some big risks and, and you know, some people died. And you really acknowledge that in your book. I'm glad you do, by the way, because it helps for those of us who are practicing and, and running programs. It helps us. It's a good reminder that we need to take. I, I see this as a privilege or an opportunity to get to work in this field. It, it reminds us to take it very seriously. Was it tempting to leave that part of the history out? And why did you feel it was important to include it? Well, part of the reason why I include um, good things and bad things is that most of what I had read previously was either all good, how wilderness therapy is the greatest thing since sliced bread, or um, the complete opposite of how horrific it is. So I was trying to kind of blend those two. I'm weaving a story, and those stories have to include everything. I was influenced in, in history in some ways by uh, one of my professors. I went to Boston University for a couple of years, which I didn't love living in Boston. Uh, 
but I did like this professor, his name was Howard Zinn. Uh, he wrote a book called The People's History of the United States. And he talked a lot about you know, history It can be used as propaganda. I didn't want to write propaganda um, I'm all, um, because I wanted people to have both sides of the story. I also think that I work, you know, originally before I got into wilderness therapy, I was a social worker. And in my training in social work, I mean, social workers have done bad things. Psychologists have done bad. I, when I was young, I was, uh, I was in Boy Scouting. And if we just say it's all good or all bad, we, you know, you got to talk about the things that did not, haven't gone well. Um, and that's important because we, we have to learn from history is about learning from mistakes because if not, you're going to repeat them. And, and I, I really took a lot out of that. In, in fact, after reading your book, I sat down with our leadership team and said, guys, here's, here's where programs have gone wrong in the past. And we need to be aware of that and learn from that. And so I, I just, again, thank you for doing that. I think it's important to note that the research we're doing within the field is showing that young people now are actually far safer in our programs than they are out of our programs. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They're, they're, they're much in terms of general lifestyle for adolescents in, in the United States at this time, the research is showing higher risk teens are better in a program than not in a program. What's your favorite part of the history of wilderness therapy? Well, you know what was the, the, the favorite part was more, I guess, is how it's all really connected. I initially, when I was collecting stories, most people said, well, this is, you know, my original idea or our original idea. And then um, as I started to um, weave the story, I, I realized how much was connected. So some of the interesting things is how many young people, and, I, you know, I saw so many people who founded wilderness programs um, were Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts. So, Andrew, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Were you a boy? Were you a Boy Scout? You're talking to an Eagle Scout. Right. Okay. So guess what? You're talking to an Eagle Scout too. Do you know <laughs> what the odds are of uh, Eagle Scout people getting Eagle Scouts? No idea. I think it's less than three uh, percent of Scouts in general, right? Wow. So we're very odd people. But if you so, but we're, we both founded wilderness programs, right? <laughs> we, we must be so very, that very is, <laughs> So, yeah, we're, for, yeah. So if you look at that, um, and we grew up, you grew up where, you grew up in Utah, right? Yep. Yeah, and I grew up in Massachusetts. So it's not my region. We just, you know, we grew up in different places, but we both, became Eagle Scouts. Now, if you, as, as I started to do this research and asking people, I would start in Ezekiel Sanchez or Larry Olson or Larry Wilson, I started asking, were you a scout? And they would all say, yes, I was in scout. And so it was sort of these themes and I'm like, huh. So really we were started on this path probably from our scouting experiences. 
who knows? Who knows what the, you know, but those influences and scouting influenced uh, Baden Powell's work, influenced uh, Kurt Hahn, who had founded Outward Bound, who Outward Bound influenced Larry Olson. And, and I mean, all of those things and scouting influenced Larry Olson. So all of those things. So that's what was to me was the most fascinating thing. Uh, and that even um, people who have, you know, on the outsides of the, the field and the outliers, there was, there's this interconnection. And I think if we just try to say, well, they were that and I'm not that, we uh, risk um, not seeing our own uh, issues or, or fallacies. And I'll, I'll, I'll be transparent with your uh, group. When I was in training, I, uh, I was a uh, between graduate, undergraduate and graduate school. I worked at a group home in Boulder, Colorado, and it was funded by the University of Colorado Boulder and um, the Boulder Mental Health. And it was a it was a behavioral program. So I was a frontline staff in a residential treatment school, house and then school. If there was combined, and every week at the end of the week, it was a point system. So uh, the participants did well; they get points. And every week, and this is kids from the ages of 13 to 18. This was 1980, so it must have been 83, 4, 5. Yeah, that's about it. Um, every week, they, they could cash in their points. And they would go to this closet. Well, I would open the closet or one on the other side. I would open the closet, and they could cash in their points for rewards. And what do you think those rewards were, Andrew? Uh, treats. Uh, they were treats, yeah. but you know what they were? There were candy and cigarettes. Oh wow! Cigarettes. So now this was fun. This was all. So there were more kids. They, they a lot of kids started that program and had never smoked. By the time they left, they were smoking, right? Because it was a very behavioral in its, you know, the power behaviorist viewpoint of psychology. I tell that story to say, like, hey. We all hear that story and go, oh, my God, that's horrible. But that was cutting edge in the 19, early 1980s. And uh, that's why I tell these stories, because you know, I was handing out cigarettes to kids who I don't know. Well, no, I guess. No, they were illegal, I guess, because they were 13, 14, you know, 15, 16, 17 year olds. But we were using that to motivate people, young yeah. people at this group home. Yeah. To, to say like you know you know the field is perfect is to do not we may be saying in 10 years from now oh you know this one aspect we shouldn't have been doing not that the intention of the people who founded the program that i worked you know in in boulder back in the day um their intention wasn't to create harm but to create change, motivated for change so I, I i like to share that story because it's also recognizing that our belief in things changes over time. I like it. And our knowledge base changes. And that's part of what's good in going in, in the outdoor behavioral healthcare field, which is really the newer name of wilderness therapy, is we're doing a lot more research. Yes. For which you, changes things. Yeah. One of the things that the early years, I'll tell you another story, the early, early years in the, the council when I was on, we started doing research on outcomes. Now, for a lot, for 
in the earlier period of time, it was everybody was 21 days. So they would do 21 days uh, on expedition and then they would discharge. It was like, this is when you start and this is when you leave. And the outcomes we found out was not so good at 21 days, that actually that was a time when the, the change process was not fully intact. And so that's why the, the people are staying longer in programs than 21 days, because 21 days was actually a bad time to discharge people. Yeah, I, and I think that's been one of the most eye-opening and exciting parts for me joining the council is that we are all, as, as programs, even comp competing programs, we're collaborating to, to make sure that, that we're practicing evidence-based practices. And, right. and I'm really, yes. yeah. And, and the, the, the results are outstanding and with more and more time and more and more research and, and a bigger sample size, uh, it'll be exciting to see what direction the field goes. Yeah. What, yeah. Will, what for you growing up, when was the moment or maybe a few moments when you knew outdoors and nature would begin to be a part of your life in a significant way? Hmm. You know, I, it was definitely through my experiences in scouting, um, being and going to summer camp. Um, I much was spending, uh, my dad worked very much worked hard and my mom, both of them worked hard. And we would go um, to New Hampshire where uh, my grandmother had a house and we would hike and backpack in the White Mountains. And I think, it would, I, I look back now and realize I, uh, but I, I look back as that's where I saw my parents as happiest and us as a family really connecting well because in our life where I, the, we were very busy and growing up and on those weekends or weeks that we can go up to the house in New Hampshire I, looking back I think I realized my everybody was happier there and so it drove me to um, to really um, nourish that love the outdoors so I went to school a couple of years in Boston but then I was like I can't live in a city and I moved to Boulder Colorado and, and which that time was not a city, it's much more of a city now, and spent a lot more time climbing and skiing and, and really combining uh, a lifestyle, uh, an outdoor lifestyle with work. And, and so did, that's how it all started, I think. Did you have a moment where you said, oh my gosh, I'm going to use the outdoors to help people? where it went from being a personal, something that you saw that benefited you personally and became something where you said and recognized the power of using nature to facilitate change that you said, this is what I want to do. And, and I know it'll work. I know it can help people. Well, that's, that's, that was, uh, that was another, uh, life crisis. <laughs> so I had it like, it was my thirties when I had, had that life crisis. So I had, uh, uh, finished my undergraduate and graduate work in Colorado. And then I came back to the East coast to a rural area into the mountains and white mountains of New Hampshire. 
I worked for a number of years, got my license as a clinical social worker, was in a private practice, but I wasn't really fulfilled, I didn't, even though I had met a lot of goals that I had. Um, so, and I had another part of my life is I spent a fair amount of line, uh, time studying Buddhism. And uh, I, I know you did a podcast on meditation, so that, that's great. Um, but I decided to go kind of all in to and study Buddhism. Um, so I ended up in a real classical way. So I ended up moving to um, Thailand and spending time in a monastery. That's a long story. We could do a whole we could do a whole podcast on that. I'll, I'll just summarize it. So uh, it was a great and challenging experience, one of the most challenging experiences. After that time, uh, after I left the monastery, I spent some t uh, time climbing in different parts of uh, Southeast Asia, really culmination in, in spending a couple months in Nepal, climbing some bigger peaks. I came back to the United States and I just couldn't get back to being a private practitioner, struggled for fair amount of time until uh, one of my, uh, I went to a 10-day Buddhist re a meditation retreat and one of my teachers said, you know, you got to, he basically said, you need to get back to work, you know, the United States, you can't go around walking with a begging bowl and expecting to make a living. <laughs> uh, so I ended up working at, at a boarding school where I ran their outdoor program and was a therapist. And so it combined those two parts because at a boarding school, you have two different jobs. I and mean, before that, I worked at an organic farm and all that stuff. But I, I started working in school and I really enjoyed the outdoor component and, and, and living in the milieu of, of, of a boarding school 24-7 and getting to know the students in a, a deep personal way. And then two people, uh, Chris Mays and Adam Sappis, uh, approached me and said, we'd like to do um, a wilderness program, hybrid program, where we, you have school and go out on expedition. And I'm like, oh, that's, so it wasn't like it was intentional. It kind of came by. It was like one of those opportunities that comes by you in life. And I just said, wow, I want to do that. And that's how it happened. It's I, like, I, yeah, it, it wasn't, I, yeah. <laughs> But you had very much, and, and I'm, a, I'm a believer in this sort of thing, it sounds like you were very much prepared for that moment many years before. You know, with all, of, with all of your decisions, the decision to go to Asia and study Buddhism and your background with, with Boy Scouts. And I, 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 I kind of see a theme here, Will, and that is, you know, for a lot of us that end up in this industry, we, we kind of come prepared, but from very different angles. And the moment that it, the dots connect, there's at least for me, I've had that experience. It sounds like you too of that. Wow. I, I can actually take this really, um, you know, this, this beautiful thing that I, I get a lot out of, you know, spending time in the outdoors and, and connect it with helping people and facilitating change. And I, I, I it's kind of, it's really fun to hear your story. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, I've never been that, like, okay, I'm going to do this. It's sort of like, huh, I'm thinking this. And then this opportunity comes and I'm like, there it is. 
like like being ready for that opportunity and just being able to see you, everything that kind of flows by um, and know and feeling like internally like yes this is I'm doing this um, just being really present and and actually as I get older I'm actually feel I get more clear on what I want and what I don't want um, and that's an important thing. What do you think? What do you think young people are needing right now? Adolescents, young adults, what you, you've worked with, how many families now? Oh, thousands. thousands. Um, you, you, yeah. are, you are in the trenches. I, you've worked with thousands yeah. of families. In, in well, I come in and out, you know, as an owner of a program, you come in and out. And uh, in the early years, you're in, like, you're doing hundreds of out you know 100 hour work weeks but as you get older you know i've been in here 21 years but um i that i can't say enough about mindfulness meditation or meditation or something to focus and center so as i see the world i see more and more whether it's staff or students or my own kids or just in town, so many people are distracted while um, spending up an excessive amount of time on screens and not interacting with the world as it is. So my hope is, and I, I do, in the, and I think that's why I see more people in the woods nowadays, because I think naturally we are all looking for equilibrium. And so at least I see more people going the outdoors and seeking adventure. So that's good. I think people need to more try to be more intentional on um, disconnecting from things and, and trying to interact with the here and now more. There's, and this is, we're in this tremendous age of anxiety and that is very much fueled by a lot of things that are, out of our control one and some are really realistically based and some are completely unrealistic and not so realistic for example the week that we're talking there are fires in montana there was a huge uh hurricane in houston and now it's it's hit puerto Rico. it's hit the islands it's heading towards Florida. there is so much and i feel anxious just watching all this stuff and yet I can't do much about it except for send my prayers, hopes, meditate, and, 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 and help financially those people in those, because I'm in rural Maine and New Hampshire. So that anxiety is really based on, um, it's, it's being fueled by look, you know, watching TV or, you know, checking on the internet and looking on the weather and, that's not keeping me, I'm not as present as I should be. And I'm guilty. <laughs> I say these things because this is my experience too. I'm guilty of it too. I don't know about, is that, or how about you, Andrew? Were you looking at those storms and, uh, or do you disconnect completely? I, it's funny you said that because uh, about 20 minutes before we got on this interview, I was reading an email from a good friend of mine that's in Miami a long report on how we're dealing and family and what we're doing. Should we leave? Should we not? Do we evacuate? And, and just sitting down here in rural Costa Rica, 
we're we're lucky if we get a good internet signal <laughs> thinking how can i help other than love and prayers and it's it, it is frustrating and there's this there's a feeling of being out of control which i think a lot of us can relate to and and that's where i think the mindfulness and meditation is so powerful i <clears throat> i actually would love you to take a minute to talk about that because because of your background and experience and you know what you gave me a great idea for my second interview with you down the road and that we'll, we'll take a whole i would love to hear all about your experience in asia um but well and then i'd have to talk about my experiences first practicing in the united states that's why i took the leap but yeah yeah but but if you could give someone like me i mean i sat through your workshop uh, last week, which was amazing. I learned so much from all of you guys that were, that were speaking, but, but to somebody out there who's going, listen, I've heard mindfulness thrown out all over the place. I still don't know what it is, which was me about a year ago, still going, I, I hear it, but I don't know what it is. Um, what, what's, what's mindfulness and what is one thing someone could do to be more mindful? Well, mind. There's a lot of different. <laughs> I, I know nothing. it's going to be a hard, a hard question to answer, but um, because there's so much to it. But I, I think you know, for those of us that that don't understand it, I think you know, starting somewhere. And where would you start? You know, I think the best way to view mindfulness, it's a state of mind where we focus one's awareness, the present moment, and kind of seeing our, or letting our feelings, thoughts, or sensations just go, but not getting caught up in those feeling thoughts and sensations physical sensations but just following your breath now we do this so we walk every most people walk every day or some sort of activity every day so they don't and they don't need to think about it and we breathe and breathing, using mindfulness meditation is really following one's breath in and out while trying to continue foc while focusing on that breath in and out and not getting caught up in the stories that your mind creates or then sensations. I think the best thing to do for people who are interested in learning or practicing it is start doing it 10 to 15 minutes a day sitting in silence following your breath it has been shown to be extremely effective to combat anxiety depression um, attention deficit all those things that can that are many of us are struggling with and mindfulness is just trying to center oneself as best as possible awesome um 
what advice would you give to young people out there that are about mindfulness practice 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 <laughs> because really <laughs> mindfulness is really it's like you know when you have if you're running a, a looking to do a road race you know a 10k you don't just jump out and try to do a 10k you because it will be painful and you will probably not make, you know, the walk. And we need our life in, in Buddhism. There's a four noble truths. The first is life is full of suffering. And I think recognizing you know, if you are have if you regularly work on mindfulness meditation or meditation in general, you are better able to deal with the suffering that you inevitably are going to experience because you will not, if you're, if you have a good practice, you're likely to not overreact or underreact to the situation. So for young people, I just get a practice. Now, some people might, and, and Mindfulness meditation sitting on a zafu. A zafu is, is basically a cushion, a meditation cushion. Some people sit in chairs. Sometimes that's just not your mind and you're really busy. Do something like maybe a run or a walk, but not with a headset on, not in turning your phone off. Some people are already practicing mindfulness. I think some of the greatest mindfulness meditators are, they don't even know they're doing, are rock climbers or surfers. People who you cannot do anything but be present because if you're thinking about other things when you are rock climbing, you're going to fall. If you are, when you're on the rock. If you're surfing, I mean, you float around, and then once when the when the waves are coming, if you're not being there with the wave, you're going to fall over. If you're a farmer, and, and and so there's a lot of different ways to do it. Just do some sort of practice that is about quieting one's mind. As a as a surfer down here, I <laughs> I've been caught once or twice in the waves not being present, and it's not it's not usually fun. I can just say that. <laughs> You're right, it's a good lesson too, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. My mind will be I'll be in the water and I'll be thinking about work and turn around and realize there's a big wave coming on to me right now, and I'm not ready. <laughs> I'm not ready for it. I so that that's a uh, very relevant for me. Um, what? What do, you, what do you enjoy most about this work? What's your favorite part of it? The people. I really like the people in the field in general. It, it um, And probably is because it, it, it attracts different types of thinkers who, and, and maybe their value system is some similar to mine. They tend to be more preservation oriented and action oriented. But I, I've, through this experience of being in the field for a long time, I've met so many incredibly kind and compassionate and adventurous and um, interesting people. So it's really about the people and the experiences that I've had with students, the experiences I've had on use and with those people out in the field. Where, where do you see the field going in the next 20 years? 
Oh, and that's a really good, you know, this, uh, right now the field is in a growth phase. So in 2008, when the economy collapsed, a lot of programs closed. We're now in a really, since 2008, uh, the, the field's been growing again. Um, and I think what's happening is there's much more specialization. So what I see, I think the continuation of specialization will occur in, in different programming models. I think you're going to see more accepted in uh, as uh, outpatient uses of in an outpatient way or day treatment. I think you'll see that day treatment many years ago in the 70s in uh, Project Adventure was doing a fair amount. It slowed down, but I think it's going to come back up. I, I think there'll be greater adoption of it because people know there's so much research that says just being in the outdoors helps us all. So I, I see the field growing, but not, not in necessarily in the, uh, the world, which a lot of programs operate, which is in the private pay world. I don't know if that will expand that much. I think you'll just see more specification of models because most people uh, who they're looking for treatment uh, of for specific people specialized in the treatment of PTSD or reactive attachment or substance abuse and and so the generalist model which was around for many years I think is fading and you're going to see more specialization you know I, I'm sure you get this all the time parents of of young people we're working with that say this is so amazing so fantastic what you guys are doing i i you know i wish i wish everybody had access to this and i guess that's my hope someday is that we'll be able to bring this and make this field a lot more accessible to a lot more people where we're right well, now and it's getting, you know, it's interesting when you say that because, um, and this is something that's in the book, is there used to be a lot more state-run programs or state-funded programs, in, uh, certainly that were influenced by Outward Bound in, 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 the New, in New England and the East Coast in general. And what happened is those programs kind of went out of favor and then um, – there was a shift. So that was in the 70s and 80s, Pinnacles Island School, uh, the uh, wilderness, uh, uh, the wilderness school, and that's still in existence. There was a, one on Cape Cod. There were there were lots of state-funded camps and adventure programs, but for some reason, in different states, the because of state funding. They pulled that money and those programs closed. I would like to see the reemergence of that. Unfortunately, I think that a lot of people don't view uh, adjudicated youth, so court ordered, they would rather have them in jails than going on um, tall ships or backpacking in the White Mountains because there's a certain lack of compassion for people who enter the justice system. So there was a period of time in our history of this field where 
it was actually much widerly, much, the accessibility was much more there for people of less means. Um, I, I believe it will come back and some, cause people believe in it. Awesome. Will, uh, two, two final questions. One, is there a book other than your own, um, that you recommend to young people, families that you like, want to make a recommendation here? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think the world of Gary Ferguson's book, Shouting at the Sky, I think for young people just interested or it, it gives a sort of staff viewpoint, even though Gary wasn't as, he, he was a staff, hired, he, he was a writer who wrote a book about being a guide in a program. So he asked a program and the program doesn't exist anymore, but it was called Aspen Achievement and Gary Ferguson wrote it. So I think that's a great entry book because it really helps people see like, huh, this is what wilderness therapy is about. And his, his updated version, I think two or three years ago, um, he did a follow-up on the students that he followed in the book, the epilogue, which is really, I, I highly recommend that as a first book about the field um, as an entry level. I, you know, adventure therapy theories, research, and practice would be for someone by uh, Mike Gass, Lee Gillis, and Keith Russell. It's good more for the academically oriented, um, somebody who's really looking at being uh, um, maybe going to school for it. Those are the two, and I think they're completely quite different. One is a narrative account, which is really a beautiful story, and the other is much more technical and clinical. Um, I, and I, that said, in Adventure Therapy, Theory of Research and Practice by Gas, Gillis, and Russell, I did write the second chapter, which is called A History of Wilderness Therapy, which is a much shorter version of the, of the book. Where can people reach you? email uh, yeah media. you can always email i'm pretty the easiest way is will at summitachievement.com w-i-l-l at summitachievement.com and at most uh any any conference <laughs> wilderness therapy conferences i usually go because i get to see old friends and new friends like you well, th <laughs> thanks so much. Uh, that was really fun to hear all your stories and I uh, look forward to many more conversations to come in the future. I learned a ton and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep the conversation alive. Yeah. Look forward to it. Andrew, thank you.